everybody, and welcome back to Breaking It Down. This is going to be episode 12 of the show. Can you believe it? I can't believe we've gotten 12 of these done already. It's flying. It's flying by. We're having a good time, and today is going to be really exciting. Yeah, I am super excited today. I'm going to be introducing today's guests, Dr. Barry Jordan. And Dr. Jordan has, I don't even think he knows this, he's been my ringside medical role model um, for since I since I met him, and probably one of the reasons that I've devoted so much of my career uh, to the, improving the health and safety of combative sports athletes. Um, I think his integrity, his devotion, his humility, his expertise, his research speaks volumes uh, just for themselves. Um, for those of you who don't know Dr. Jordan, I'm going to give you the short list of his accolades. Um, he's currently the chief medical officer at Rancho Los Amigos National Rehabilitation Center in Downey, California. Um, before that, he served as the former director of Brain Injury Research Program at Burke Rehabilitation Center and the director of the Memory Evaluation and Research uh, and Treatment Service. Sorry, say that without uh, <laughs> yeah, having a problem and so you passed your fast. cognitive function. Right, exactly. Um, at the Burke Rehabilitation Center in New York. And prior to that, and co uh, coexisting with that, he wa- served as the uh, chief medical officer for the New York State Athletic Commission um, for many, many, many years. And he earned his reputation as one of the legendary ringside physicians, and deservedly so. Um, he currently serves on the medical advisory board for the NFL Player Benefits Association. He's written numerous books and scholarly articles on the topic of concussion and sports neurology. He's discovered the importance of the ApoE4 allele, which I'll let him talk about, to you about, um, and its relationship to concussion. And I just can't thank him enough for sharing his time with us today, especially so close to Thanksgiving. Yeah, this is going to be a really exciting episode, and we're going to dip into it right now. So I guess uh, the first thing that I'd like to ask you is uh, what drew you to ringside medicine and and combat of sports research? Um, I know I got involved. um, I was kind of snookered into into the field. I had a background I was at the time I was the co-director of Montefiore Emergency Room uh Montefiore Medical Center's emergency room and I had a sports uh background um I had covered everything from high school uh sports to collegiate to goodwill games uh I was the Big East uh medical director for swimming and diving I had uh, covered the U.S. Open for many years um, and actually became their interim director for a while. So I had a lot of sporting experience. And a local um, promotion and a, and a friend of mine actually said, look, we need a doctor. Can you sit uh, ringside for us? And I'm like, well, I'm emergency medicine. How bad could it be with all this other background? And I have to tell you, it was a whole different world. And I realized that this was a specialty unto itself in a big niche. Um, and that's kind of one of the things that that drew me to it. Um, how did you get involved? Um, I became interested in uh, boxing and combat medicine through my interest in sports neurology. Uh, initially, I knew when I was in medical school I wanted to be a neurologist. So while I was in medical school at Harvard, I did an independent concentration in sports medicine. I thought that the two would be related. So back in med school, I started to try and develop the field of sports neurology. Uh, 
And as a consequence, I gravitated to the sport where I, I would probably have the most exposure to uh, traumatic brain injury, and that was boxing at the time. Well, that's that's really interesting. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, can you tell me, is that where you came upon the association of the E4 allele and its relation to concussion? Um, the association we found with the E4 allele was related to chronic traumatic brain injury. It's not necessarily CTE, but we found that individuals that had the E4 allele then boxed, when you stratified by exposure, those boxers who had the E4 allele with high exposure to the sport had much more neurological impairment. So it looks like there's an interaction between the E4 allele and exposure and the amount of neurological impairment an athlete may experience. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fascinating. That's, that's really fascinating. So, so it does affect some people more than others depending on... Right. So if you have a low... The, the key risk factor for chronic traumatic encephalopathy or chronic traumatic brain injury in general is exposure, which makes sense. The longer you have traumatic experience, traumatic brain injury, the more likely you're going to have neurological impairment. So, so uh, if you have a low exposure, it doesn't matter what your genetic makeup was, and it's not the study that we did. Uh, but if you had a high exposure and you had the gene, then it uh, resulted in more neurological impairment. It's also important to note that the E4 allele is also the same allele that increases your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Well, there's, because there's, of the, oh, I'm because sorry. Because of the pathological similarities between Alzheimer's disease and chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that's the reason why we looked at APOE4 allele. Yeah, that, that overlap is very interesting. Um, do do they also find tau protein in uh, Alzheimer's? Yes, uh, but uh, in Alzheimer's disease, there's two proteins that are deposited: is tau and uh, amyloid. In CTE, uh, tau is the primary protein that's deposited in the brain. But approximately fifty percent of CTE athletes will have amyloid deposition in the brain, also. Right. Yeah, so I think that's what makes things a little bit uh, confusing, right? Because there's so so much overlap. That's correct. Right. Um, do you so chronic traumatic encephalopathy we're using now is the pathologic finding, correct? That's, that's correct. Okay, and so we're we're now trying, and I know you've written papers about this. I'd love to hear about it. Trying to correlate um, retrospectively at this point, right? The the uh, symptoms or the groups of symptoms. Um, but at this point, do you think it's possible for us to um, talk about CTE as definitively being a progressive neurodegenerative disease? Well, I think, well, how progressive it is, I think needs to be determined because what, what may be complicating the fact, uh, the issue is that as someone ages, there may be a superimposed aging on a, it could be either progressive pathology or a stagnant pathology. So it's hard to know exactly how much aging is playing a role. In terms of the, um, you know, the pathological uh, classifications, there's like four classifications, one, two, three, and four. Uh, the milder forms are stages one and two. Uh, it's difficult to correlate the clinical findings with the earlier stages because the earlier stages have uh, minimal uh, tau pathology in the brain. So in order to, it, it's difficult to correlate small amounts of tau with significant neurobehavioral pathology. 
Right. And I, and I think that becomes uh, very important because we really don't have that denominator, do we? I mean, we? It's kind of hard. We don't have an in vivo test at this point. So for the living uh, person, so we really don't know, uh, I think as a cross section, how many people might have some tau uh, deposition, which is not causing uh, clinical symptomatology. Is that correct? That's correct. That's absolutely correct. Okay. Do you, do you think there's anything on the horizon uh, now that is close to being uh, capable of doing or, or following, um, you know, prospectively uh, while athletes are alive, uh, well, whether or not there's tau there, and, and the clinical symptomatology? Right. Well, there are some um, clinical uh, PET scans that are used in Alzheimer's disease, which is called PET scans. Um, for amyloid, amyloid PET scans. And uh, that ligand will tag amyloid in the brain. Now, there are some experimental studies going on now looking to see if they can uh, tag tau in the brain using PET scans. Okay. Yeah, I'm hoping they can uh, come up with that pretty quickly because that would give us a myriad of information that we don't have yet. Um, have you in your, in your practice come across patients or colleagues who assume either that uh, concussion and CTE are the same thing or that concussion inexorably results in, in chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And uh, I guess the corollary to that would be how do you counsel your patient population? Um, because the diagnosis of, of chronic traumatic encephalopathy just seems like an overwhelming um, uh, you know, diagnosis to carry at this point. You know? Right. What I typically do is I express that a concussion typically is an acute traumatic brain injury, whereas CTE is a chronic traumatic brain injury, and the a concussion represents the immediate effects of trauma to the head while you're in the ring or the cage. Uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy reflects more of accumulation of multiple concussions and or subconcussive blows. There's a the Boston group currently believes that subconcussive blows playing a major role in the development of uh, CTE. So I don't think that I think the jury is still out in that regard. But I think it more than likely is a combination of concussive and subconcussive blows over a period of time. Yeah, I I think I think I agree with you. Um, and one of the one of the things that always interests me is is kind of the negative image of something. So it's always interesting to me. Um, you know, if you follow uh, patients out, right? Because the the group at, uh, in Boston obviously have a bank where you know there's there's some kind of um, bias because those are brains that are are clearly donated for people who've had problems before, and so um, you know that that needs to be out there. But what's interesting is that there are a lot of people I think walking around who are probably asymptomatic um, who have had repetitive concussions. Um, you know, who've played sports for a long time, who are not um, showing signs and symptoms of uh, what might be attributed pathologically at autopsy to chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And I think that, uh, you know, group is, is an interesting study. In other words, are there um, epigenetic factors that, that modify, um, you know, the expression of, of um, this disorder? the uh, factors maybe uh, again is exposure I think makes the uh, it makes a big difference and one thing I tell my uh, my patients 
at least the parents of uh, of athletes who are participating in contact collision sports. I said, usually if there's a low exposure to the sport, the likelihood of having chronic traumatic encephalopathy is, is low. The other thing that's important is that there must be a genetic predisposition because if there was, wasn't a, pre, a genetic predisposition, then everyone who had exposure to repetitive traumatic brain injury would develop CTE. But one of the things I've always noticed when I was working with the New York State Athletic Commission is that you could have two boxers with the identical same exposure to the sport. One boxer could probably do rocket science and the other one is walking on his heels. So uh, this has to be some type of genetic uh, predisposition. The other thing is that um, you can see CTE pathology and other uh, asymptomatic individuals or other neurological conditions uh, and, 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 and individuals who were not exposed to repetitive traumatic brain injury. So I think uh, we need to learn more. We still, we still don't know about this condition. Right. Um, do you think in this regard the media hype has helped or hurt us? Um, and uh, I guess a corollary to that would be, are you ever concerned that certain research groups or colleagues have a disproportionate sway with the public? or do you, And do you find it difficult, therefore, to refocus your patients after exposure uh, to, to media or Internet hype? Well, I think the, um, the media um, has taken things to the next level. And I think... And unfortunately, a lot of people are relying on the media to get medical information. And as we both know, uh, New York Times are not medical journals. So you can't always believe everything that you read in that regard. And I think it's important to uh, realize that at least uh, the, the, the Boston group, who are doing uh, great work, they have a biased population. They have uh, athletes who are symptomatic and volunteer to donate their brain. So you have a biased, uh, selected or selected population. Absolutely, I couldn't. I couldn't agree with you uh, more in in that regard. I I know I find it very frustrating sometimes when when patients come in because you know they're reading from you know they're they're lay public journals, but it's really difficult to to backtrack on that. And I think part of the reason is because, and, and I may be wrong, you might have a different opinion on this, that doctors, scientists in general, we live in a world of uncertainty. We're, we're accustomed to saying we don't know, but that's part of the, the drive for us, right? To, to find the answer to the puzzles. But, you know, for, for most people, they want a concrete answer, right? And yes. I think that that's, that's where I think there's a, a lean more toward you know, going to, to more or less scientific information in that regard because the concrete answers are being supplied. They may be incorrect or partially correct and based in partial truth. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe you have an idea of how to correct that because I'm not really sure how to do it other than to continuing counseling people and, and you know, with, with what we do know. Yes, I, I agree with that, yes. Uh, has to be direct pay, uh, education to the patient. Yeah. Um, can you tell me, please, um, I guess you've alluded to this uh, in, in one of your earlier answers, and I, I've seen uh, some of your interviews, um, but I wanted you to share your thoughts on uh, high school football and participation. I know CBS did a, a little 
uh, interview the other day about, you know, what the future of high school football might be. Um, and, and also the corollary to that would be college football. Um, and whether or not you think that uh, if you play those sports, there's a risk factor for long-term sequelae for neurologic disorder. I think um, high school football, again, if you limit the exposure just to high school football, I think the risk of of CTE is, is low. Uh, obviously, there's going to be a little high, uh, higher risk with college football simply because of the uh, duration of exposure. Uh, I know for a fact that the enrollment in Pop Warner football has decreased over the last few years, uh, probably out of concerns uh, regarding traumatic brain injury. The one thing to um, realize is that the professional athletes, professional football players that do ex- exhibit uh, CTE on post-mortem examination, these athletes have had long exposure to the sport. So, for example, some of these professional athletes may have played four years Pop Warner, four years high school, four years college, eight years in the pro, getting your upwards of 20 years of exposure. And that's when I think your risk is going to go up. Yes, I agree. You have to be on the same, um, uh, some type of genetic background that predisposes you to it. So it's a combination of the exposure and what your genetic makeup is. Although we don't really know what the gene is yet, I think it may be it may be multiple genes or interaction between genes. I think the jury is still out on that. Yeah, I I have to think that it's got to be more than than one gene and probably some epigenetic overlay and. You know, there are some studies that now suggest that that opioid use or performance enhancing drugs may may actually contribute to, uh, you know, worsening of of this condition. But it's still out. uh, The jury's still out on that as well. Um, You know, it was great seeing you uh, at the karate combat. um, And I just thought that was a a wild, wild um, uh, kickboxing. Um, For those of of you who are not aware um, karate combat is a is a kickboxing uh, event that's that's done in a in a pit. And for me, the atmosphere was kind of a cross between the Matrix and Bloodsport. Um, but I was wondering if you can discuss your your role um, with them. It was great seeing you there, but uh, I'd love to know what what you're doing if you can talk about it. Right. Um, well, what the plan is uh, that setting up a medical advisory board for the karate combat and along with Julian Bales uh, I'll be on that committee with uh, with other individuals um, he's in the process of still putting the committee together it sounds uh, like they're being very proactive and I and I commend them for that yes yes yeah um, can you tell me about your current research interests well my current research interests uh, basic is basically trying to uh, learn more about the link between traumatic brain injury and dementia. And uh, this has been my research interest throughout the years in the sense that I'm really interested in the overlap between Alzheimer's disease and chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I think we can learn a lot about Alzheimer's disease from chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and we can learn a lot about chronic traumatic encephalopathy from Alzheimer's disease. So I think it's, it's, it's good to look at these two conditions, and uh, that's what I'll... Uh, plan on pursuing in the future and that's the, the the link between brain injury and dementia that made us think about uh, the e4 allele about 20 years ago yeah it's inc- it's incredible that you've been contributing uh, so much to uh, this field I think you're you're obviously a pioneer in the field and 
you know, it, it's just tremendous to have had you uh, talk with us today. Again, I can't thank you enough for your time, uh, especially, again, so close to Thanksgiving and obviously for your friendship and guidance over the years. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you, Dr. Jordan. This has been really eye-opening and a great learning experience for me. This was very cool. And I'm excited to see what comes from you next. I'm sorry? I'm excited to see what comes out next. Okay, sounds good. All right, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the show. We hope you enjoyed it. My name is Chris Maraboli. And I'm Dr. Sherry. And until next time... We want you to live each day with passion, compassion, and introspection. Have a good one. Have a good one.